Good morning and welcome. Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to chapter 12 of the book of Acts. We're looking at the last portion of this chapter, beginning in verse 19. And uh, as always, we like to have you stand as we begin by reading this passage together. The text uh, picks up in verse 19. It says, Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed for a while. And he had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him, having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we look to your word yet again that your Holy Spirit would faithfully speak to us and minister to our hearts, that I am well aware, Lord, there are issues and needs that are represented in this room and in the various places where this message is going that aren't necessarily directly touched by the passage. I may not even go there, Lord, but we pray that even in the inadvertent messages or statements, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to us, we'd hear your call upon our hearts, and you'd grant us the grace to respond to you with the kind of faith that not only honors you, but brings joy and peace into our own hearts. We ask you for that blessing, Father. Trust you for it as we pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that's a little easy to miss sometimes when we're reading the text is that something that has been translated from one language into another often loses some of the idioms or inflections or inferences that would be understood by somebody who is reading the text for the first time. And I say that because as we begin this chapter, and it says Herod went from Judea to Caesarea, more literally it says he went down from Judea to Caesarea. Well, I, I, there was something that caught my attention about the 19th time I read that passage. And I, I suddenly realized that <clears throat> he was in Jerusalem and he'd gone from Jerusalem down to Caesarea. Why didn't the text just simply say that instead of saying Judea? And the answer is because basically a lot is implied. I mean, we can tell on one hand that Unlike most of the New Testament writers, when Luke recorded his record, he did it with such copious detail and attention to things like geography that he really wanted us to understand that he was talking about real places with real people uh, involving real events, that these, this is a narrative history. It's not just a story that we're reading. And that's an important distinction to make when we think about the Bible. We're not just reading stories in the Bible. We're reading narrative histories of what took place, and they're intended by the reader to be taken as historical fact or record and not just something that was mythologically crafted to uh, illustrate some greater point. I remember years ago, <coughs> a young man went to a, I knew went to a Bible study and the pastor said, as he began reading the book of Job, he says, there was a man named Job. And the gentleman said, well, we know that there wasn't actually a literal Job. And his response was, well, it says here, there was a man named Job. <laughs> 
How do you come to the point that that's not literal? Because it says there was a man named Job. That's the whole point. It's written as a factual statement, not just simply that's supposed to be a nice story that we learn to tell our kids as they go through Sunday school, but that we can conveniently forget as we get older. The point is that here we find this interesting notation because Herod wasn't just traveling physically from Jerusalem or Judea down to Caesarea. And even the word down becomes important because it's as if he's going from a high place to a lower place. The places were very different, Caesarea and Jerusalem. I mean, they were different culturally. They were different, different religiously. And that difference was astronomical. Even though they are only 60 miles apart by road even today, they, were, they could have been polar opposites as far as the east is from the west. Because what happened in Jerusalem didn't take place in Caesarea. And what happened in Caesarea clearly was not allowed to take place in Jerusalem. You see, Judea and Jerusalem is basically inference of a people who are rabidly, even fanatically religious in their devotion to their God. And especially with regard to the most magnificent structure, not only in the city, but the temple itself was considered to be the greatest architectural accomplishment in the entire world at that time. It was one of the main wonders of the ancient world for its splendor. And it became not only a source of faith for the Jewish people as they looked to it, but it also became a source of, we might say, identity, even to the point of pride that they began to be able to point to this massive structure, this beautiful, ornate building, and saying, that's our God's house. What's your God's house look like? And there was no other place on the planet who could point to anything as magnificent and as large and as splendid as that particular place. And it's interesting because when there were efforts by, say, Stephen or even Jesus and, and certainly Paul to in any way just simply say what the scriptures itself said about the temple... In fact, we, we find it over and over again in, in Mark and Acts and, and, and twice reported where the Lord says, the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built by men's hands. That they took Stephen out and they stoned him to death. They, they took Jesus and accused him of, he's trying to destroy the temple. And even Paul is arrested and almost pulled limb for limb because he would make the inference that somehow the house in Jerusalem was just a building and that God did not necessarily have to constrict himself or constrain himself to the boundaries of that particular place. And in saying that, it's not something that just ended at some time. Even today, there are, are many in, in the Jewish community, there's many in the Muslim world, there's many in the Christian world who actually see that piece of 10-acre piece of ground as being actually the place where God lives, and so oftentimes people will go to Jerusalem and they'll touch the wall as if somehow that's going to radiate some kind of holy presence that's going to transform their prayer life. And what we miss is the very fact that Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to become resident inside of you. Paul would go on to say, your body becomes a temple of the Holy Ghost. So the, one of the transformational and really divisive issues between Jews and Christians in the first century was this very thing. Then many of the Jews, even Jews who had professed Christ, said, but you have to go back to Jerusalem because that's the central place where we worship God. And, and even to go on further, that is even a, 
idea that's being increasingly promoted even with messianic Christianity today that somehow you can walk with Christ and have him living in your heart but it's not until you go to Jerusalem or you attend the feasts or you begin to do the rituals that you really come into that deeper relationship with God which is a concept that I don't find support in any place in scripture because my body is the temple of the Holy Ghost not because my body is so smoking hot (laughs) No, my body is, you know, God likes to slum sometimes, and I happen to be an example of that. You know, the whole point is that I have God living inside of me. I, he, he's resonant, but he says, you know, I've, I've put myself inside this earthen vessel, which is not a, a term of flattery. He's not talking about some dynastic Ming dynasty vase that you set up and pay millions of dollars for. No, he's talking about basically one of those things you pick up at Home Depot, one of those clay pots, that's all you are. And yet God has chosen to indwelt and, and place himself inside of you. And even when we sometimes say, well, I'm a pot for the Lord, but I'm a cracked pot. As Leonard Cohen once put it, he says, that's the only way the light can get in is through the cracks. But we have to realize that when we talk about these two cities, there's such a contrast between them that he wasn't just traveling from one place to another, but he was moving from one reality, one world, one cultural system into another, much like you see in Israel today. In fact, the Jews have this interesting saying about Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which is kind of the new version of Caesarea. It's only a few miles up the road, by the way. They say, Jerusalem prays, but Tel Aviv plays. And when people go to Israel and they go to Tel Aviv, oftentimes they're struck. It is like being on the, 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 the Mediterranean. It's like being in some basically pleasure coast where there's sailboats and parties and drinking and all sorts of sexual activities and brothels out your ears and all this kind of stuff. And if you want to really go and have a big time, the big advertisement in the travel industry is go to Tel Aviv. You don't see signs saying, go to Jerusalem, where you can't do any of this stuff. And that's essentially the difference that existed in the time of of Herod Agrippa I. You see, Caesarea focused on, not on the spiritual, but on the carnal. Like the rest of the Roman world, they worship the human form. That's why you look, when you look at Greek and Roman arc, uh, uh, statuary, they made everybody look exactly like a human being. They tried to follow it and even would improve the form. In fact, they usually started with a, a form that they said was Herculean. And then as they changed emperors, they would just simply remove the head and put the head of the new emperor on that same form. It's kind of efficient. But usually the head was made of gold, so that's why we don't have many of those heads anymore. But they, they worshiped the human form, not the invisible God of the Jews. They pursued the pleasures of the flesh, not penance. They loved power, not prayer. And they sought pride, not humility. In the Roman world, to be proud was a virtue. To be humble was a weakness. And so there was always that look of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. Caesarea was a thoroughly Roman city boasting every human comfort that a Greek of the day or a Roman of the day would want. They had theaters, they had amphitheaters, they had gladiatorial arenas, they had the hippodrome for chariot racing, they had a, a, a steam rooms and massage rooms and they had brothels coming out your ears. Lots of brothels, by the way. 
and the lifestyles that were thoroughly forbidden in Jerusalem were openly flaunted in a place like Caesarea. In fact, the Greek term that's often used in, in a very generalized sense, the word porneia, refers to any kind of sexual immorality you can imagine, whether it's fornication or adultery or homosexuality or bisexuality, bestiality, transsexuality, incense, pedophilia. All of these things were part of the lifestyle and practice of the Greco-Roman world. And that's why when Herod was in Jerusalem, he acted like a pious Jew. But when he came to Caesarea, he acted like a Roman ruler. This city which had been built by his grandfather, who even built the port that was made as one of the largest in the ancient world, was filled with all of these special things, but particularly the magnificent palace that reached out into the Mediterranean Ocean. We can only see the ruins of it today, but that palace was of incredible splendor and beauty and magnificence. And those who ruled over Judah, not just kings, but also the procurators and the rest like Pontius Pilate, they did not live in Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem at the feast days to make sure that if there's any problems, they could stamp it out right away. But as soon as things settled down, they went home to Caesarea. They went home to the palace that was built overlooking the beautiful Mediterranean Sea. There they resided, there they ruled, and there they reveled in the pleasures of that city. So that Agrippa went down to Caesarea because that was his home and that's where his heart was. So even though Jerusalem was a spiritual center of the Jewish world, Caesarea was a political, economic power and pleasure center of all Judea. So much so that when Caesar Augustus' lieutenant, the guy who is his closest friend, his brother-in-law, and uh, really key to many of the victories and architectural gains of the Roman Empire. His name was Agrippa, whom Herod Agrippa was named after. He was Marcus Agrippa. But when he came to visit the city of Caesarea, his comments on seeing it said, it is more Roman than Rome. And that was considered to be a great accomplishment. So you have this kind of diametric contrast here. You have Herod who lives like one man in one place and he behaves like a totally different man in another place. That just like his his grandfather before him, Herod the Great, Agrippa lived a life of duplicity. Outwardly Jewish, inwardly Roman. Now you and I might sit there and say, what a hypocrite. But for him, it was not a matter of hypocrisy. It was just simply a matter of political necessity. I mean, he would have agreed with Paul when Paul made that statement in 1 Corinthians 9. To the Jews, he became like a Jew and to win the Jews in the world, but not of the world. In other words, Paul looked at it and said, I will become culturally anything I need to be enabled to present the gospel, but he would not compromise the message of the gospel. Herod, on the other hand, would become a Jew when he's around a Jew just to get them to believe that he was actually a Jew. In fact, today amongst many of the ultra-Orthodox, they still hold Herod Grip I up as the highest example of what a Jewish king should be like. And when they talk about the Messiah, they use him as their example. And completely close their eyes to the fact that he was a very different person when he went to Caesarea. It's interesting how we see that. So that even though Paul would say to the Jews, I became a Jew, what Paul also told us is that his core, he was a Christian first, 
and the cultural dynamics didn't really matter. It reminds me of how Billy Graham once was asked, well, what's the appropriate way for people to dress? And he said, simply dress as the world dresses, but don't undress the way the world undresses. In other words, you're part of a culture, know what that culture is and fit into that culture so that your difference or distinction isn't because of some weird aspect of what your culture is like. But rather you conform to the culture that you might be able to talk into the culture. But Herod was not doing that. He became simply whatever he had to become. In so many ways, he was like the men Isaiah described. He said, these people will come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts, at their very core, they are far from me. You know, in this sense, I'm afraid that they, they are very much like many of our public leaders today. Many of them speak about their Christian faith and, and, and the like. And yet at the same moment, they will defend abortion They'll offend every form of sexual immorality. It uh, doesn't matter whether it's fornication or adultery or LGBTQ. Things that the Bible clearly says are wrong, but they just simply say, well, <clears throat> that's my political view. It's different from my spiritual view. And I find that something that's often impossible to do because I think, for example, as I was watching some of the daytime presentations of the uh, one of the one of the one of the parties, I can't remember which one had a, had a, had a convention last week, um, and I just watched the various individuals and characters and groups. I mean, it was the most fascinating assemblage of people, um, and uh, and they were celebrating this fact that they were had such great diversity. But as I watched it, I felt much like Lot emotionally when Peter said of him that, and I give him my, my explained or expanded version of 2 Peter 2.7, he said, he, as Lot looked at the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and what was happening there, he was greatly worn out. He was distressed. He was oppressed. He was vexed by the wanton sexual conduct and ways of the ungodly, lawless, and unprincipled men. You see, Herod Agrippa, like many of today's political figures, was a machine politician. I don't know if you know what that term means. Basically, in many of the large cities around the United States, we have the political machine that runs the city. And if you want to run for office, you have to conform to whatever the message and the practice of the machine is. And so as a result, you know, it's like, uh, I thought it was interesting when one of the candidates was being asked uh, why she railed so harshly on, on the other candidate. Uh, she just simply responded, well, that was just a debate. In other words, debates are to be won. They're not to be means of explaining what you do. And you begin to realize that there, a culture is being shaped and formed into a place where what we call now in political terms, gaslighting where we give truth for falsehood and falsehood for truth and right for wrong and good for evil. And we began to turn everything around so that you began to think that you're taking crazy pills. And you began to come to that place where saying, well, maybe I shouldn't say anything. Maybe I shouldn't speak out because, I mean, maybe I got it all wrong. Maybe they're right. Maybe God does embrace same-sex marriage. Maybe that's right. And that's intentional, that's purposeful by challenging you and throwing, putting, mixing things up so that you begin to question the basis. And if you're not a man or woman who is in the word of God, you are going to get confused very, very quickly. 
And if you do know what the water of God is, you're going to begin to feel very stressed and tensed in your life. But sadly, what happens is we often admire and emulate some of the sociopathic personalities that we see in our culture. I think of Asaph, who wrote Psalm 73. In fact, I don't know who Asaph was. He wrote probably 10 or 12, I can't remember, of the Psalms that we read. We often attribute them all to David, but there were others who who contributed. David was the major contributor. But there were others, Asaph and the sons of Asaph, the sons of Korah. They were kind of like the worship leaders in the temple. For, for centuries, and so we don't know who exactly wrote this. But this is one of the most, I think, profound and insightful psalms that we have because it talks about living in a world that is contrary to what God's will is. In fact, Asaph begins in Psalm 73, verse 3, and he says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I envied the wicked, the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever found yourself doing that? You look at people who are living corrupt lives. They, they lie, they cheat, they steal. Uh, you know, they, they just do whatever they need to do, murder and massacre in order to advance themselves and they rise to the top of the heap. They can do nefarious things, but when they're featured by magazines and other things, we, we look at them and say, wow, that must be great. And he says, I looked at that. I looked at people who are prospering in the world and I thought, I envy them. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're, they're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills and therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence from their callous hearts. A callous heart is another way of saying they're sociopathic hearts. They no longer feel empathy or for anyone but themselves. From their callous heart, he says, comes iniquity. The kind of iniquity it says, you do whatever you need to do to win because in the end, all that matters is winning. He says that from their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits they scoff and they speak with malice in their arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. They're always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. In other words, why do I bother reading and praying and going to church and trying to follow the Lord? Why do I even bother? It's just it's in vain. The more I do that, he goes on to say, I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning. And then he says further on, and when I tried to understand this, when I tried to get my mind around how the unjust and the wicked prosper so much in our world. It was oppressive to me. In other words, he said, I got depressed. And then he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You can cast them down to ruin. This is why David in Psalm 37 made the statement in the opening of that psalm. He said, do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong 
For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Now, how literally does God mean that? (laughs) Well, does it surprise you at all that he means it very literally? Especially as we see illustrated in what happened here to Herod. Here was a man who clearly had a miracle of God take place right before his very eyes. Peter is held in a prison that he can't escape under any circumstances. It's a fail-safe system, and yet God in his power overrode all of his security systems and led Peter out by the hand of an angel so that nobody could explain where he went. And rather than him stepping back and saying, wait a minute, what am I dealing with here? It's instead that attitude of pride. How dare they do that to me? How dare he escape? How dare he not let me execute him? And since I can't execute him, I'll execute all the soldiers who are supposed to watch him. And I'm leaving town and I'm going back to Caesarea where things operate the way they're supposed to operate. Not in this religious nonsense place I have to govern. But it's in the midst of that moment when he is really at his greatest glory. The towns of Sidon and Tyre, which weren't part of his kingdom at that time. They were part of the Syrophoenician kingdom, another province of the, uh, the Romans. But they got their wheat and their grain, their barley. They bought, got it from, from the land of Judah. They had to be on good terms. And so here he has this leverage over them. And they're coming in like sycophants always do, begging and pleading and genuflecting and trying to plays and flatter to get his favor so that he'll restore what they need to survive. And they make that terrible error as he steps onto the podium. And it's interesting because when we go to to Caesarea on our Israel trips, the first, one of the first places we visit is the theater in Caesarea, which still stands there today. The very place that Herod stood, the very place that was the last moment of his, really his rulership, where he is struck by God. He walks out onto the stage, well, I'll let you tell, let Josephus, the historian who was contemporary with this, I'll let him tell you exactly what happened. He said, when Agrippa came to Caesarea, there he exhibited shows in honor of the emperor. And on the second day of the festival, Herod put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a truly wonderful contexture and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment was illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it. It shone out like a surprising, after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. At that moment, his flatterers cried out that he was a god. And they added, be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth own thee as superior to mortal nature. Upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. A severe pain rose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He was carried out into the palace. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, He departed this life, being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. You cannot tell me that if Herod had foreseen the path that he was going down, that he wouldn't have humbled himself before God. But then again, maybe not. He was a man driven by a greater passion than truth or goodness. 
He'd been raised in a Roman, in the imperial court in Rome where winning was everything and people were machinating for all the time to get ahead and how to gain power and authority. Uh, Sycophancy was a way of life. And to speak to men like the emperor as if they were God was considered the point that you wanted to aspire to. He was driven by that same kind of selfish ambition to be godlike in his control over his life and the lives of everybody around him. And yet, in the greatest of ironies, when he is at the highest point of his glory and his power, he fell to the lowest point. In fact, I'm reminded of what Solomon said in Proverbs 6. He says, A scoundrel and a villain who plots evil with deceit in his heart, he always stirs up dissension. And therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant, and he will suddenly be destroyed, but without remedy. You could essentially say that describes the entire family of the Herods. The entire family, especially the men, but even the women, all aspired to power and greatness at any cost. They were willing to sleep with whoever they had to sleep with. They were willing to kill whomever they had to kill. There was no limit because power was the essence of everything, taught from grandfather down to grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And every one of them ended up dying young, in exile, suffering all sorts of loss and catastrophe. None of their lives were blessed. And yet in their time, as at the moments of their power, people would look at them and go, wow, look at them. It's like the gentleman who was very wealthy and passed away and he was being buried. And one of the guys who was there saying, wow, How much money did that guy have? And he says, well, I don't know. More than you and I will ever have. He said, well, how much did he leave behind? He said, all of it. It's an old and a silly joke, but it's very, very true, isn't it? Do you ever step back and look at the stuff around you and think, wow, God has blessed my life. He's given me all this stuff. And realize that you cannot take a single piece of it with you. They'll strip all my, my phone, all my jewelry off, give it to somebody else who won't appreciate it. Just the way it was given to me. <laughs> but you see, this kind of sudden disaster, decisive destruction, is something that we read about frequently in the Bible. I mean, there are numerous accounts. The flood the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the annihilation of the Canaanites, the untimely death of many wicked kings and rulers, the destruction and captivity of Judah, Israel, and then Judah, and even as we saw in the New Testament, the death of Ananias and Sapphira. There's not a one of us that didn't read that and go, whoa. I always love the, the statement afterwards. They dropped dead and it says, and great fear came upon the church. I'm betting it did. But every one of them speak to something that Moses said to Israel by the Spirit of the Lord in Numbers chapter 32. He says, you may be sure that your sins will find you out. You can't bury them deep enough. You can't push them back in your memory far enough. You can't deny them strongly enough. Your sins will find you out. And it's a truth that is so important and so compelling that sin has consequences. 
Sin has consequences. It, 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 when we disobey God, when we go live our lives in a way that's against his life, when we commit adultery and fornication and homosexuality and lesbianism and, and transsexuality and blah, 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 or Q, whatever we do, there is a consequence to that, not simply because I think there is, but because the Bible says what you reap or what you sow is what you're going to reap. It has a consequence. And this is what's so painful for me today. Because I find so many of my colleagues are reluctant to say such things. They stay away from these kind of passages. Or if they read over them quickly, they, they may give them a, a furtive glance. But when we have so many of these statements of God's divine judgment, his punishment for sin, and we ignore that, we leave the impression that God no longer judges people. Even though, even as the church, he tells us in Hebrews 12 that he chastens and disciplines his children, you and me. We overlook the fact that Paul didn't pull punches when he preached. Later on in the book of Acts in chapter 25, we find that he is standing before Herod Agrippa I's son, Herod Agrippa II, who is also a king. And he's in the same palace in Judea, or excuse me, in Caesarea, where his father had died. And Paul is brought in to explain his theology and practice and why the Jews wanted to kill him. And it's interesting how Luke reports the message that he gave to Agrippa II, the son. It said, Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Now, a little backstory helps out. See, King Agrippa was there with his sister, Bernice, with whom he had been living with in an incestuous relationship. Something that even in the Roman world was looked down upon. And here is Paul saying, let me talk to you about the righteousness of God, what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of God. And let me talk about self-control, learning to say no to sin. And let me talk about the consequence, the judgment that will come upon you if you continue in this path. Is it surprising that Agrippa wanted to terminate the message really quickly? That he got up and basically said, okay, I've heard enough and walks away. Because see, Paul had moved from preaching to meddling. But a message that doesn't meddle doesn't preach. There's an understandable fear that if we speak openly about these things, if we start talking about the certain particular sins and, and saying that they do have consequences, that they're not okay, that somehow we're going to convey the impression that God is just aping for the opportunity to throw lightning bolts on people upon the earth. He just wants to find your sin and he wants to nail it for you, nail you for it and grind you until you're nothing but dust. That is the idea that we simply as preachers will use the, the judgment of God as a cudgel to condemn and the spiritually and morally clueless. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. But when we think about God speaking about his judgment of mankind, scriptures present a very different picture of his attitude. 
When Ezekiel said it in Ezekiel 33, he says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that he turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's an interesting <laughs> statement, really. I mean, it's a, it's, if you don't turn, then the consequence is death. So the objective of saying turn and don't do this anymore isn't because he just simply is irritated or bothered by some person's behavior. He says, you don't understand the end result of this is death and destruction. In fact, one of the most oft-repeated passages in the Old Testament, we can find it some 30 times repeated, where the Lord describes himself to Moses as, he's, as Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock and God passes by and declares to him his glory. What is it that Moses hears God saying? He's saying, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Wouldn't you love to stop right there? <laughs> Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He is not the angry God that he is portrayed to be many times, but he is a God who is not afraid to tell you that there are things that make him angry. Especially when we fail to proclaim the truth of God as Paul did in Acts 20, 27 when he said to the Ephesian elders, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Yes, he is a God of compassion and a God of grace he abounds in love beyond anything that we can measure. He's totally faithful. He's forgiving. But the other half of that story is he also will not hold the guilty unpunished if their sins are unconfessed. Paul said, I didn't shrink from telling you everything. My fear is the day we find in the church there's a great deal of shrinkage. I mean, it's true that God is patient and long-suffering, but Peter warns, he says, do not let this one fact escape your notice. What fact? What did he say? Don't, don't miss this point. And all that he's saying, don't let this escape your view. Don't lose sight of this. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Yes, he's all those things. He's patient, he's caring. But you have to understand there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of consequence. That's why the Bible warns that although God's love never runs out, he does tell us his patience does. In Proverbs 29.1, he says, a man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. When I read that, the first thing came to my mind was Herod Agrippa. How many times had he heard? How many times had he heard? How many times? Had he, even within the Roman culture, incest was considered to be wrong. 
And yet he persisted in his lifestyle because that's what he wanted. That's what he preferred. He's a God of grace and mercy, but he's also a God of justice and judgment. In fact, you can't have grace and mercy without also having justice and judgment. If I were to say to you, you know, I decided to show you mercy, you'd probably say, for what? It implies that you've done something wrong. When God says, I am a merciful God, and when people say, I just believe in a merciful God, why would you believe in a merciful God if it weren't for the fact that you have to have something in your life that you desperately need some mercy? I'm going to have mercy upon you, he says. I'm going to be gracious. Not only am I going to keep you from getting what you deserve, but I'm going to give to you blessings and riches that you do not deserve. You're going to have things that you never earned. I am a God of mercy and I'm a God of grace because I am, first of all, a God of justice and a God of judgment. And when we divorce those two things, we end up with a false gospel. Paul four times said to Timothy and Titus to maintain sound doctrine. The word sound there is really interesting. It literally means it has no, nothing missing. It's the whole gospel. When we talk about somebody not having sound health, we're saying basically from, toe, from head to toe, they are healthy. Everything's operating the way it's supposed to operate. But if you go to the doctor and he says, I don't like the rate of your heart. I don't like the looks of your blood. I, you know, suddenly it's implying that there's something that's wrong, something that's out of order. And Paul's urging to Timothy over and over again is don't let the truth of the gospel be changed, altered, or corrupted. Be sound in your doctrine, which means that God is a God of grace and he is a merciful God and that we cannot earn salvation. That's why Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. But if we are willful and disobedient, there is the justice of God that says you're going to reap what you sow and what you sow or what you reap is the judgment for those actions. The grace is not an excuse to sin, but rather a tool to help us live free from it. And Paul couldn't have made that point more clearly when he wrote the Romans. He said in Romans 6.15, shall we sin because we are under grace? Shall we sin because we are under grace? I've had people tell me that. Well, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> Pass me another one. And it's like, is that what that means? He said, God forbid. That was his words, God forbid. Do you not know that you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. It's not a choice of what's going to be the controlling thing in my life. It's the fact that I'm going to be controlled by something. Something is going to have a greater influence over me than the other. And the question is, what is the compelling force in your life? Is it, is it Christ? Is it his will, his kingdom? Are we saying in our prayers, God, your will be done, your kingdom come, not my will be done, not my kingdom come, but yours come? Is that the attitude of my heart? Or am I standing back and saying, well, I'll just do what I think's best and not worry about it. Well, he says that one path leads to death and the other one leads to righteousness. And I would say this to you as someone who at my great advanced age have seen 
the truth of that statement repeated over and over and over again in the lives even of Christians who knew better but said, well, I know God will forgive me. And I thought, I think when we presume on God's forgiveness, we're really mocking what it cost for him to get that forgiveness, to make it available. Because Paul would later explain to Titus in chapter 2 of his short letter to that apostle. He said, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God isn't just a ethereal concept that floats out there like a cloud. The grace of God is a force. It's a power. It's, it's a, an essence that speaks into our life. It's the way that God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and righteously in this present world. So the grace of God doesn't say, oh, go ahead. It's okay. It doesn't matter. After all, you're on vacation. <laughs> the grace of God says, don't do it. That, that voice that says no is the grace of God. It's the power to resist and stand firm. That's why Paul warned to the Corinthians, he said, don't receive the grace of God to no advantage, to no benefit. That if I've come to Christ, God has given me his grace. What do I do with that grace? I, I let it guide and direct and influence my life so that I say no to ungodliness. I say no to worldly pleasures or passions. I say no to a life that's out of control. In a court of law, you know, we're commanded as, as a witness to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall so help me, God. What is the whole truth? Well, Paul put it really eloquently in 1 Timothy 1.15 when he said, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul said, you know, when it comes on the, the Richter scale of sin, man, I was, at the, I was the worst of the worst of the worst. There was nobody, he said, that has ever done anything worse than the things that I did. And God came to save people just like me who are so far away that they can never find God. He came to die to save me and to draw me into fellowship and sonship with him. But then again, Jesus warned Luke 13.3. He said, but unless you repent, you will also perish too. That people perish because they reject. They won't repent. And the word repent is often misunderstood. It's, it's not just simply saying, I'm sorry. It goes much deeper than that. The word, it's a metneo in the Greek, literally means to change the way that you see the world. You, your whole set of, your perspective has changed. And the only way I've ever been able to describe it was I remember the moment I prayed the sinner's prayer in, in that pastor's living room. And then I got up from my knees and walked out the door, and I didn't take three steps before I realized I was living in a different reality now. The world was all different. I knew what the world, I knew who I was, I knew what my life was about. I, I just suddenly it all made sense. And I knew that there was no going back because I had been ruined for the old stuff. I could never go back there. 
You see, there's something transformational that happens. When you truly are born again of the Spirit of God, it's a transformational effect so that the repentance is not something so much you do as it's something that manifests itself in you and changes the entire trajectory of your life. I went from a guy who would go every night down to the park to smoke pot with my buddies to getting up early every morning with my Bible to find somebody I could read my Bible with. And my parents were really concerned. They understood the other guy. They couldn't figure this guy out. And that's the kind of thing that happens in your life. And I'm not saying that you have to do that, but you just know when you're truly born again of the experience, when you truly had Christ come into your life, well, if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, did you really experience the difference? It's a question we often have to ask ourselves. What enslaves my life? Am I enslaved to Christ or am I enslaved to my own selfish ambitions? I mean, who do I obey? Because again, Peter said it in his second letter, chapter three, when he said in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And since everything will be destroyed in this way, did, did you hear that part? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look toward forward to the day of God and speed its coming. We live in a, a day and age, I believe, in my opinion, where Christianity has become, for many people, a good luck token, a way of getting that extra blessing in your life. I remember years ago when the book, uh, The Prayer of Jabez, came out and became a runaway bestseller, made the author many millions of dollars. Um, and, you know, basically it said if you pray this same prayer for, you know, 29 days straight, then it, it will kick into gear and your life will be completely changed. And the prayer was basically about expand my borders and prosper me and so forth. And it's really interesting because it's a little obscure passage in First Chronicles 9 that, you know, most of us read over and never looked at that as being this life-changing promise, but this guy took this and printed this and published it and people were reading it. I remember flying overseas one time and I'm sitting looking around the, the, uh, the cabin and I'm seeing all these businessmen reading this book. And I asked one of them, I said, are you a Christian? No, but if this works, it's worth it. And I thought to myself, well, I couldn't help but say, I doubt it will. But it's that idea that somehow if we can find that lucky, lucky rabbit foot, which wasn't so lucky for the rabbit, and I can rub it enough, you know, somehow it'll bring this, this mojo on me. And I can, you know, this was the kind of stuff, this was the kind of idolatry that I lived in before I was saved. I went to vacation Bible study for one reason, because as soon as it let out, bowling league started, and I thought, maybe I can up my score didn't work. But it was pure superstition. And my concern is we live in this kind of superstitious religious environment where we suddenly say, well, you know, all dogs go to heaven. 
So every lifestyle is okay. Every lifestyle choice is okay with God. And I'm telling you, friends, we have to become very, very clear on this point, not because we want to beat people down with it, but we don't want to lie to them either. We want to tell them the truth. That if they engage with these things, he says, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They won't get there. When I was a kid, my dad used to take us down to Mexico, down Baja, Mexico, to go fishing for a giant sea bass. Quite an adventure. I didn't catch much, but I got to set off a lot of firecrackers, um, which was really what I did. But I just remember we were driving along, and my dad couldn't figure out where we were. And he pulled over the side of the road, and in his best Spanish that he could remember, he asked these two young boys, is this the road to San Felipe? And they responded, si, si, bueno, bueno, bueno. <laughs> and my dad thought, huh, okay. So he started driving along, and they started thinking, Wait, bueno, bueno. He said, they said, yes, this is a good road. <laughs> it was smooth which is not that common in Mexico. I mean, it was straight as an arrow, went right out into the desert, God knows where, because there was nothing anywhere. And my dad pulled over and he said, wait a minute, this can't be right. <laughs> and thankfully, he turned around because otherwise I wouldn't be here today. <laughs> I'd probably be dried up, desiccated bones scattered out over the desert, you know, after my parents decided to eat me for their own survival. As I watch what's going on in our country and I see people with their pedal to the metal and pursuing an agenda and a lifestyle and a thing that they think this will be the answer to every problem I've ever had, it's like watching somebody speeding to their own destruction. It's, it's a Thelma and Louise world. We don't know where we're going, but we're making great time and we're just sure that when we get there, it will be great. But the Bible says, no, it's the way of death. This, my friends, is what's at stake in all of this. That we can get all hunkered down about the politics and the partisanship and the, you know, um, the, all of the lying by profession. And we can just say, oh, well, that's just politics and move on. And, and, and that drives you crazy. It makes you mad. You get angry. You hate that kind of stuff. But there's something much more serious going on right here. That you have a whole culture that has such influence around the world that's pushing people forward towards agendas that will only bring death and pain and destruction and loss and suffering and hardship. It's impossible Herod's fate was unavoidable because of the way he was living his life. And I look at many of these people and it breaks my heart because I know what they are pursuing is going to bring them to a point in their life where they're going to say, why didn't somebody tell me the truth? And my fear is the church, the Christians become so concerned about how they appear, how they come across and what other people think about you 
that you withhold the truth. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. And therein lies the choice. Life or death. Father, I pray that you'd that you could anchor this concept into our hearts and minds, Lord, that we could begin to clearly see what the, what the goal is, what the objective is, what's at stake. That, Lord, we can become concerned about a loss of lifestyle or standard of living or uh, loss of governmental uh, or rights and privileges that we have and all the kinds of stuff that becomes the talking points. But when you look at this world, you don't see Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Green Party or uh, Socialist, Communist or any of that thing. You don't see white, black, red, green or brown. You don't see rich or poor. You don't see smart and not so smart. You don't see the gifted and the ungifted, Lord. You, you just see people. There's only two kinds. There's the saved and there's the unsaved. Lord, I pray that you'd grant us the capacity to begin to see the people around us through that lens. That bad people do bad things oftentimes because they don't know Jesus. And they probably won't change their behavior until they do. Help us to understand that that's our first concern. That's the thing that we should be praying. That God, you'd bring a spiritual awakening upon this land that would change the hearts of men and women. That they would seek God. Bring a spiritual awakening upon America that we might humble ourselves and pray. That we would confess our sins not their sins, but our sins. So that you can bring healing, not only upon our land, Lord, but healing upon our very lives. Help the church to rediscover who it is. We pray for this grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.